Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon. The subject of this episode of the podcast is a discussion draft released last week by Senator Ron Wyden, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which for the first time provides legislative text for the proposals in the senator's earlier white paper for overhauling the U.S. system of international taxation. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be rejoined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, John Gimigliano and Seth Green. John is the principal in charge of the Federal Tax, Legislative, and Regulatory Services Group, also known as FLORS, and KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. John is also the host of KPMG's Catching Up on Capitol Hill, an excellent podcast devoted to legislative developments, a podcast that I have often relied on to make myself sound smart about legislative matters. Seth Green is a principal and co-head of the International Tax Group of the WNT practice here at KPMG. I've also relied on Seth many times to sound smart. John and Seth, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Good to be here. The discussion draft released by Senator Wyden on August 25th is the latest of a veritable deluge of developments on the legislative front. We have covered in past episodes of this podcast the Wyden White Paper released in April of this year and also the Biden Green Book released soon after in May. John, can you get our listeners up to speed on what's happened since then? Well, in many ways, not much, but in other ways, suddenly a lot. I mean, that's the way it often goes when you think nothing's going to happen. You know that there's work going on behind the scenes and and all of a sudden it starts to happen. And I think that um, obviously, you know, we're going to talk about the widened draft today, and that's an important step forward. It's nice to get legislative text, you know, um, such as it is. There's it's not complete, but it's at least something. But then on the House side, where chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal, had been really pretty quiet throughout this process over the course of the year, is now preparing to act. And I think the big news, of course, is that we will now have a markup in the Ways and Means Committee, legislative text in the Ways and Means Committee on this tax bill. And it's going to be off to the races. I think we are now beginning this process where uh, we're going to have actual legislative text and actual legislative action going really pretty much for the rest of the year, or at least until we get to the finish line on whatever this tax bill looks like. So I think there's quite a bit um, now happening. And I think the nature of the conversations we've had can change where we've been much more theoretical and hypothetical on this. Now we're going to be actually examining legislative text, and that's a different conversation. So I should tell our listeners that we're recording on Thursday, September 2nd. I say this because things are moving very quickly, so we don't know everything we say here could be obsolete in a week. But on a previous episode of the podcast, John, I I told our listeners to expect draft legislation in October and may even have expressed the view that the reconciliation bill probably won't become law if it ever does until December, along the same timeline as the TCGAA back in 2017. I must admit that just about everything I've told folks on this and many other legislative topics I've parroted almost directly from your podcast. What's changed and and why? 
Well, to an earlier point you made that you often listen to that podcast to sound smart, I want to uh, send my apologies, Gary, because I did say that we wouldn't see legislative text until October, and I was wrong. Now, the question is, why were we wrong? Because we, we believed that we would not see text until October. In fact, we were more or less told that at various points by those writing the legislative drafts. So obviously what changed is we had this vote in the House of Representatives around approving the fiscal year 2022 budget. And that was important because it includes reconciliation instructions, which will allow Democrats to do the Democratic only tax bill later this year. But attached to that, there was a compromise deal made between moderate and progressive Democrats on the timing and the sequencing of the vote on the budget and on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And, you know, a lot of nuances in this, but big picture, the deal that was made was really to accelerate the timing of the tax bill by about a month. So instead of seeing legislative text that first week of October, we now expect to see it next week, perhaps as soon as uh, September 7th, right after Labor Day, and action on it right after that. So that's really why things changed. And um, there's an open question as to, you know, is staff going to be ready to release the bill? And the answer is going to be yes, right? When your staff you have to be ready. You don't have a choice. But that means that they've probably been working around the clock for the last couple of weeks to prepare the chairman's mark in the House to be ready for introduction uh, and release next week. Or, you know, if you're listening to this next week, this week. John, why did Senator Wyden put this discussion draft out now? And how seriously should we be taking his proposals? Well, to the second question, he's the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Therefore, by definition, we must take it very seriously. So the other question, though, but why now? Right? Knowing that it's being released right prior to what is happening in the House, which is going to get all the attention next week. I think it's a couple of things. Chairman Wyden has a long history of releasing discussion drafts to really get feedback from taxpayers. He's done that with his Modernization of Derivatives Act bill, MODA, with reforming the energy credits bill. He's done it with his bill on mark to market. So this is sort of the way he operates. And it's, a, in his view, good government and transparency to provide taxpayers with an opportunity to view these things and comment on them. But I think there's also more to it than that. Obviously, with things ramping up quickly, I think this is a way for Chairman Wyden to remind people that he is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. This bill is going to have to move through the Senate. And he's got his own particular view as to what international taxes look like. So as everybody's looking at the House bill next week, we at least at a minimum have to keep in the back of our minds that Chairman Wyden may have a different point of view or a different nuanced point of view than what we would see in the House. So it's a way to remain in the news and in people's thoughts while all this action is going to be happening in the House as well. People sometimes think of congressional Democrats, like their Republican counterparts, as a monolithic unit. But I recall the words of Representative Al Swift, a Democrat, who once said, Republicans are the opposition, but the Senate is the enemy. So from the perspective of congressional Democrats, this may not just be about whether a reconciliation bill is passed, but whose bill gets passed. Is it the version put forward by the House or the Senate's version? In the TCJA, because of the tight margins in the Senate, it turned out to be, for the most part, the provisions of the Senate bill that became law. Margins are even tighter in the Senate this time around, but so are the margins in the House. John, what are your expectations in that regard this time around? Well, Gary, I love that quote. Uh, The chairman of the Ways and Means Committee that I work for used to cite that on a daily basis 
right, that it, it constantly in conflict with the other chamber. And we could have written this story 100 years ago with the same dynamic, that the House really struggles to gain leverage over the Senate because of the rules of the Senate, the complexity of the Senate, the, typically the tighter margins in the Senate. You correctly point out that the House is very narrowly divided, and maybe get, that gives them more leverage this year than they normally get. It's going to be really hard for Democrats in the House to pass out a bill out of the House, which they may do in the coming weeks, or at least by the end of the month, and force the Senate to take the House bill because of the things you talked about, the dynamic in the Senate, where a number of moderate Democrats have made their views known and have really dug in on a number of points on the corporate rate, the capital gains rates, various other points. So as a former House person, it pains me to say this, but it's hard for me to imagine how the House is really going to use the leverage that they have to really get their way. Now, they'll get something, but if in the end you look at the bill, I would probably bet that the Senate will have more leverage and the final product will be shaped more. When the dust settles on this, if they successfully pass a bill, we'll say it was probably shaped more by the Senate than by the House. And that's no indictment of the people in the House. This is just simply the way it works and has always worked. And I don't know why it would work differently this time. Well, I think, John, one point that you don't raise, and we don't know how this is going to play out, is there is at least potentially a third actor here, which is the administration, right? They put out their green book and then largely have receded to the sidelines, and it is possible that's where they will stay until they're handed a bill to sign. But also, if there is too much conflict between the House and the Senate, one could at least conceive of the administration trying to play dealmaker. That's the fair point. And I think that was less true in 2017, I think the administration, you had really big personalities in the House and in the Senate who'd been thinking about tax reform for a very long time. And in many ways, the administration was involved, but they just wanted a bill as much as anything. This administration, I think, has stronger views about the policies themselves. And you're right, Seth, they could become a player, although, you know, again, my bias shows as a former congressional tax writer, you never let the administration people forget that they're in the executive branch, not the legislative branch, and that in the end, you'll do what you want to do. But you're right. They could definitely be influential in trying to broker deals. Thanks, John. Let's turn to Seth for the substance of the discussion draft. On an earlier episode of the podcast, we compared the white and white paper with the green book. Seth, what's your overall impression of this discussion draft and has Wyden moved the ball forward any? Well, I mean, certainly he's moved the ball forward in that we have some draft legislative text. A few more details are provided. At the same time, both the white paper and this draft are less comprehensive than what the Biden Green Book set forth. It's First of all, it's international only, for one thing, even within the world of international tax. Wyden doesn't address a variety of interest expense rules that are in the Green Book, whether it's a worldwide limitation for foreign parents or groups or the application of 265 to exempt or partially exempt dividends and, and other yield from CFCs, you know, or the it's modifications to the inversion rules that are in the Biden draft. There, there's just a lot of things in Biden that widen doesn't do, whether it's because Wyden isn't interested in those things, or Wyden is saving them for a later date, or Wyden figures he'll just let the House and or the administration take the ball on 
those sets of issues, it's really hard to know. But there's somewhat less going on here. And then obviously, within what is going on here, there are some some differences. Not only does Wyden take a different tack on the country-by-country approach, where the, the Green Book takes a literal country-by-country approach, and, and Wyden says that they're going to try to get to the same effect by using um, mandatory high tax. Also, Wyden then takes that and expands it beyond guilty and beyond branch, where the country-by-country country does exist in the Green Book, but Wyden would expand it to subpart F as well. Seth, you mentioned that Wyden would adopt a mandatory high-tax exception as a substitute for country-by-country. Could you unpack that a bit more? Well, at a conceptual level, this is intended as a simplification, and at a conceptual level, I think it is a simplification. The, The basic idea is that if any country is producing a pot of income with an effective tax rate that's higher than the U.S. tax rate, and that income is already functionally exempt. So if you put it in a country by country basket. Okay. It's in its own little basket, but if you exempt it, well then because it's exempt, the foreign tax credits fall away. And so again, those credits can't go benefit lower taxed income. So at a super high level, this does seem like it's a form of simplification, but the rubber hits the road in in a few different ways. And this is really a, maybe not as simple as it looks and b only sort of an approximation of country by country. So you've indicated that the widen high tax exception approach to country by country may not in fact be simpler than pure country by country. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, so the first point is you have to break everything down into a country level computation to determine what the taxes are associated with the income in a particular country. Every dollar of income needs to be associated with a country, and then we need to figure out the taxes that are associated with that income. That is the same whether you're doing country by country or high tax. So just stopping there, I've done 90% of the work. Then doing a 904 computation as opposed to a call it exempt computation is not a huge amount of complexity. Now, 904 can get more complicated at this point when I start talking about losses in one basket, offsetting income in another basket, and setting up OFLs or SLLs. But, and here's the important point, those rules, the OFL and SLL rules, exist precisely to deal with situations where income and taxes and credits don't quite line up in the foreign tax system the way they do in the U.S. tax system. And the widened draft itself recognizes that timing differences and NOL carry forwards and other rules like that are important to to get right and that a simple year-by-year high-tax, low-tax approach won't always get it right. If you lose $100 in one year and earn $110 in the next year and you pay $2 of tax, that is a 20% tax rate. Even if you pay the $2 of tax in the year when you earned 110, it's not a 1.8% tax rate. It's a 20% tax rate. And you need some kind of timing rule to teach you that. And Wyden doesn't give us those rules, whereas a country-by-country mechanism 
with carry forwards and carry backs. And admittedly, the guilty rules right now don't give us carry forwards and carry backs of foreign tax credits. And the Biden administration has not proposed to change that. So there are problems there too. But that's just a relatively simple turn the carry forwards and carry backs back on rule as opposed to create an entirely new system for determining what your effective tax rate is when your income and losses appear in different years. So Wyden has a complex problem sitting in front of him. And honestly, country by country has a relatively simple answer to that complex problem. And also the treatment of expense allocation is different in a high tax universe than in a country by country universe, because you're doing the expense allocation after you've characterized the income as high tax or low tax, rather than associating the expenses that would be onshore expenses, primarily interest, with that income, and then applying your your limitation mechanism, the 904 limitation after expense allocation. So that's maybe not a complexity versus a simplicity point, but when you do your expense allocation is going to lead to different outcomes. You mentioned earlier, Seth, that Wyden would extend mandatory high tax to subpart F and foreign branch basket. Under current law, guilty FTCs are haircut by 20%. The Wyden proposal would also extend this haircut to sub F and branch taxes. This wasn't in his earlier white paper. What do you make of this proposal? Well, it's sort of interesting, Gary. I mean, on the one hand, I think the primary impetus for the guilty haircut that has its antecedents going back a number of years to, to Senator Baucus's proposal a few years back, I believe. The impetus for the, for the haircut is to try and give U.S. multinationals more of an incentive to reduce their foreign tax liability so that they don't say, well, I don't care if I pay foreign taxes, I'll just get a U.S. foreign tax credit one way or the other, why bother to try and minimize my foreign taxes? To give them some skin in the game is, I think, the idea. If you view it through the lens of U.S. taxpayers should have skin in the game and have to care whether they reduce their foreign tax liabilities, then you know you can see why you might want to extend that proposal beyond where it currently exists, which is guilty only. That being said, it does exist only in guilty, and guilty is unique in that it is a partially exempt regime right? But we exempt a portion via the, the 250 deduction. We exempt a portion of the yield from your guilty activities. One can make the argument that it's not particularly unreasonable to exempt a portion of the taxes or deny a credit for a portion of the taxes, deny the credit for the portion of the taxes associated with the exempt income. That can make a certain logical sense so that you, you have the practical element of wanting U.S. taxpayers to have skin in the game along with a conceptual justification of viewing guilty as a partially taxable, partially exempt flow of income. But when we move to subpart F and branch, that, that justification falls away, at which point you're really looking at an outcome which I would say stands in pretty stark contrast to long-standing U.S. tax policy of trying to prevent double taxation of cross-border flows of income. That's why we have a foreign tax credit. That's why we negotiate the creditability of taxes in our tax treaties with other countries. And so, again, where the income is fully taxable in the U.S., 
that policy we've had of avoiding double taxation would seem to suggest the credits should be fully available up to the amount of the U.S. tax on the associated income. And so it's crossing a line we haven't crossed before. And there are real arguments why you wouldn't want to cross that line, notwithstanding the kind of similarity of the practical consideration. The other two major deviations from the Biden tax plan relate to the beat and fitty. Biden would repeal the B and replace it with the shield. Similarly, he would repeal FITI and replace it with unspecified R&D incentives. In contrast, Wyden would keep both the B and FITI, albeit with some important tweaks. Seth, let's start with the B. What changes is Wyden proposing to make? Well, so first and foremost, um, under current beat, there's, I think, three credits that are available to offset your beat liability. And that's the low-income housing credit, the electricity production credit, and that portion of the ITC, which relates to the energy credit. Section 38 has, I think, it's about 30 different forms of credit. And Wyden would make all of those Section 38 general business credits fully creditable against the beat. Importantly, however, because We are on an international podcast here, and the beat is primarily a cross-border provision. He would not make foreign tax credits fully creditable against the beat. So the complicated recomputation of your base erosion minimum tax amount and how FTCs interact with that would remain unchanged by this draft. But the Section 38 credits would become fully creditable. Going in the other direction, he would, rather than simply having a 10% rate applied to your recomputed, your base erosion minimum tax amount, what he would actually do is apply 10% to your regular tax amount and then take the delta, kind of the add back of what the beat adds to your regular taxable income. And that would be at some higher rate. He hasn't told us that rate. Presumably it's a dial to be turned to hit a revenue target, I guess. But so he would raise the rate implicitly on your base erosion payments and in return let you claim some but not all more credits against that increased liability. As for S.H.I.E.L.D., he doesn't really tell us anything. He says, well, gee, Biden administration raises some concerns and they put the S.H.I.E.L.D. out there and we'll do something. And I think it's really important to note that the Biden administration has their thing. They call it S.H.I.E.L.D., But a big piece of S.H.I.E.L.D. and honestly, a big piece of what the Biden administration was doing with their country by country computation for guilty and farm branch, those rules are about steps 2.0 and pillar two. And so, you know, this isn't just he's doing something different from Biden. It's that he is, I guess, acknowledging indirectly that pillar two is out there but not really telling us how he, Wyden, would go about trying to make the U.S. system look more like a Pillar 2 compliant system. Seth, here's my question to you then. I mean, if we make the beat look more like the shield, or the shield look more like the beat, I mean, does it really matter in that context? Or just keeping the framework of the beat, is that in itself going to be so offensive in the Pillar 2 negotiations, no matter what we do with it, that you know that's going to be problematic? I mean, I think if we keep a version of a base erosion regime that does not look 
at all at the other side of the transaction. That only asks, is the payee non-US? It does not ask, is the payee low taxed? I think that's going to be really problematic as relates to the OECD. Now, they really want to get something done. I don't think they would sign off on that as a pillar two compliant regime. I don't think anybody would say that's fine with us. It doesn't violate treaty non-discrimination clauses, although we have our arguments as to why it doesn't even under the beat. But be all that as it may, I think there would be a lot of resistance to that, of viewing it as inconsistent with pillar two. Would that kill BEPS 2.0? That's a different question as to whether being inconsistent with is the same as killing or whether being inconsistent with is something that at least for some period of time could coexist with pillar two. I don't have a good answer to that second question, but is it would it be inconsistent? Oh yeah, it would be inconsistent. Seth, let's talk about FIDI and Wyden's white paper. He proposed to change the intangible income in FIDI to innovation income. Under this proposal, a company's benefited income would be equal to its expenses for so-called innovation spurring activities in the U.S., such as R&D and worker training. Has the widened discussion draft added any additional detail? Yeah, actually it has. Well, so the first point is it wouldn't necessarily be dollar for dollar, this, the, the innovation income. It would be some unspecified percentage of those expenses. That being said, absolutely we're told that R&D conducted in the United States would be part of the computation. And the other part of the computation would be worker training expenses, where they give us quite a bit of detail about what kind of training expenses would qualify. And I am not an expert on that portion of the law. They're piggybacking off of existing statutory regimes that relate to, to, to worker training. One of the things I know that I've heard is that, you know, it's got to relate to people who are expected to earn or are currently earning less than $82,000 a year. So we're not talking about training your C-suite executives and such not, but they put meat on the bones. You can look at the draft and I think know with a pretty fair degree of specificity, which expenses would go into this formula. Again, we don't know exactly what percent would be multiplied by those numbers to tell you what your benefit would be but we know what expenses count. And we also know that the formula would still, at the end of the day, then compare the amount of income you earn from foreign destined transactions with your overall earnings and apply a ratio to whatever number you get from multiplying the percentage by the qualifying expenditures. And that would, at the end of the debate, be your overall tax benefit. I will say I find that last part a bit odd that if your training relates entirely not just to workers located in the U.S., but workers who will be targeting the U.S. market, you can still get a benefit from that training expense as long as someplace on your consolidated return you have export sales. The training doesn't have to relate to those export sales. Conversely, you could be training people to do things that will be producing overwhelmingly export sales. But if in other lines of businesses, you have a heavily domestic line of business, the amount of your benefit from that training is going to be potentially very much reduced. Because again, it's all of your training expenses in the United States 
And then you multiply it by a ratio, which is net income from exports over all of your net income, but not trying to tie that ratio to the activities that are producing the benefit. So it's a, it's a very strange formula, and there will be winners and losers that may not necessarily have anything to do with how much research they're doing or how many people they're training, but has more to do with whether they are exporters or serving the domestic market. Safidi has not been well-received by our trading partners. In May of 2019, the EU submitted a letter to the Trump administration suggesting that FIDI was a financial export subsidy prohibited under our treaty and WTO obligations. In addition, the OECD's Forum on Harmful Tax Practices, or FHTP, has initiated a review of FIDI as a non-compliant patent box. However, interestingly, the last FHTP report listed FIDI as in the process of being abolished, apparently based solely on Biden's Green Book proposal. Seth, do you anticipate that Wyden's version of FIDI would be any better received by the international community? Well, I mean, maybe a little bit. As you mentioned, FHTP looks at it as a quote-unquote patent box and then calls it non-compliant because it doesn't really have a nexus requirement. Given the absence of any need for R&D or patent-related activity to be part of the computation for FIDI, let alone that the activity be in the United States, viewing it as a patent box is, is somewhat odd. But in any case, Wyden is looking at specific onshore activities as a part of the measurement of the FIDI benefit. So in that regard, it is a step closer to the kinds of patent boxes that FHTP has approved. On the other hand, as I've just said, at the end of the day, the entire benefit still runs through this export profit to total profit computation, which does make it look a bit like an export subsidy or an export preference. And certainly from a WTO perspective, if not from a harmful tax practices perspective, it still is likely problematic and will, you know, attract some opposition. Wyden would allocate 100% of U.S. Arnie and stewardship expenses to U.S. source income for purposes of the FTC limitation. Seth, what's the idea behind this proposal? I think it is simply uh, an attempt, uh, pretty straightforward attempt to incentivize keeping onshore those kinds of activities. So RE activities and management slash headquarters activities. Whether overall the magnitude of that benefit, is it going to affect where people decide to place those activities? I'm not an economist, so so I don't know. I will say I do find it somewhat interesting to note the focus on stewardship, which I do tend to think of as headquarters and predominantly high salary activities. And indeed, a lot of R&E activities involve high salary employees. And then contrast that with the, the FIDI rule focusing on training for lower income workers that seem to be working kind of both ends of the spectrum there. And I'm not sure if that's intentional or more coincidental, but we do see them kind of coming from the two ends and maybe meeting in the middle. I don't know. But I really think it is just an attempt to keep those activities on shore. Seth, we've talked a lot about BEPS 2.0 on this podcast. 
how does this discussion draft relate to BEPS 2.0? And in general, how do you think Congress is thinking about it? Well, so that's a great question. If you look at the Green Book, there's a lot in the Green Book, the guilty proposal, the branch proposal, and probably more than anything else, SHIELD, which are explicitly drafted to fit hand in glove or pretty close to hand in glove with Pillar 2. That is a theme of the Green Book. And the Biden administration and Secretary Yellen have not been shy about their view that BEPS 2.0 is important for the U.S., that both Pillar 2 and also Pillar 1, which, which there's nothing in particular even in the Biden administration's Green Book proposals, but which the view is Pillar 1 would give U.S. multinationals protection from the DST and other extraterritorial taxes being imposed around the world, and that Pillar 2 is a prerequisite to Pillar 1. And so there's, there's a view that BEPS 2.0 is a very important priority for the United States in achieving international consensus to make it happen, and that the Green Book pushes that forward recognizes the importance of that to the Biden administration by coordinating guilty with with Pillar 2, by adopting SHIELD to try and coordinate with Pillar 2. There is much, much less of that in the Biden proposal. There, there are some, as we've said, there's a nod to SHIELD in the BEAT proposal. There is a nod towards income inclusion regimes and Pillar 2 in the reg authority that would be granted under the Wyden guilty proposal. But there is just less discussion of, and as far as I can tell, less feeling of urgency around BEPS 2.0 coming from Wyden. It may be there, but not be coming through the written word. It may not be there for Wyden, but be there for others on the Hill. Or it really may be that the administration feels the urgency, but Congress in general does not feel the urgency. John, do you have a, a sense of, along those lines? Congress is certainly aware uh, of the BEPS 2.0 project, but I think you're right. The urgency is just at a different level than it is with the administration. You know, But boy, look, the administration has made this a major priority. It's not often you see the Secretary of Treasury taking a tax issue as you know among her largest priorities. In my view, the way the Hill views it as perhaps less about let's get consensus at the OECD and more about let's make sure that the U.S. tax system remains consistent with, competitive with what the rest of the world is doing. And so because these major changes are happening outside the U.S., that the U.S., as we rethink our tax system, should do the best that we can to keep our system in many ways consistent with or competitive to the changes that are occurring outside the U.S. So however they get there, I do think that the BEPS 2.0 project has been influential in the legislation we are likely to see this year. John, I'll give you the last word. Where do we go from here? and What do you expect in the coming days? weeks and months? <laughs> well, uh, the coming days, look, we're going to see all this action in the House over the next couple of weeks as the House tries to move the tax bill and the, the broader bill, but the tax part is the part that we're interested in through the Ways and Means Committee, out of the Ways and Means Committee, and ultimately through the full House. Question is, you know, assuming they're successful on that, and I assume they will be in some way, shape, or form, what then? 
obviously it goes to the Senate and uh, it's not yet entirely clear what the Senate will do. One, you know, the obvious thing is for the Senate to repeat what the House has done, go through the tax writing committee, the Senate Finance Committee, mark it up much the way it was done in 2017. But I think there's also a real possibility. We'll just have to see how this goes, that they may not introduce their own bill through the Senate Finance Committee and mark it up through the Senate Finance Committee. They may just simply take the House bill and begin amending the House bill directly to the floor of the Senate, which would be a you know, more streamlined process, although would not give the Senate Finance Committee the ability to shape the bill as much as you might otherwise expect. So these are questions I'm looking forward to seeing how they play out when we get the Senate engaged in the process after the House bill goes over to the Senate. But I think in the end, the question of when does this become law, if it becomes law, I think our timeline is still more or less the same. I still think it's after Thanksgiving. It might be the week before Thanksgiving, but somewhere in mid-November to mid-December still sounds right to me. Thanks, John, and thanks, Seth. Thank you both so much for joining us today and all of you for tuning in. This wraps up our exploration of Senator Wyden's discussion draft. As John has made clear, things are moving fast as the budget reconciliation process continues. We will be here to update you on the developments and progress or setbacks along the road to U.S. international tax reform. And I know John and his podcast, Catching Up on Capitol Hill, will be there as well. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these and other developments. Until our next episode, take care.